following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And, and this, this is, is Box, Box Office, Office 30. 30. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now, let's dive into our review of Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Pete, what do you got for us? All right, so Die Hard 2 is directed by Rennie Harlan, which I know you had mentioned in our previous segment. He's a director and a producer. He's done a lot of work and uh, gathered some of his titles because his name wasn't ringing a bell for me necessarily. So um, he's directed um, some other notable films such as Deep Blue Sea, Cliffhanger, Long Kiss Goodnight, Legend of Hercules, and 12 Rounds, among others. Uh, And actually, fun fact, um, another movie that we mentioned in our Box Office 30 segment as out this month in theaters um, which was the Adventures of Ford Fairline. You and I sort of said we didn't know what that was. Yeah. Um, that's another movie that he directed, uh, starring Andrew Dice Clay. So he's actually competing against himself uh, in theaters <laughs> in July 1990, which I thought was interesting. That is pretty weird. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And then we talked about um, the book uh, that this was based off, but the screenplay, um, as it were, of that is written by um, Stephen D'Souza, which uh, explains at least partially the insanity of this movie. Um, you know, you'll find among his writing credits, uh, movies such as 48 Hours and its sequel, Commando, The Running Man, which we mentioned last month, Hudson Hawk, another great Bruce Willis movie, uh, The Flintstones, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Judge Dredd, and the list goes on. Um, and he wait, directed... Wait, wait. Wait, which Judge Dredd? The Stallone one? Yes, yeah, the, the 90s Judge Dredd. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yes. Now, now, do you know what book this particular movie is based off of? Because it's... It can't be based off the same character as McLean in the original Die Hard. No, yeah. And again, like we briefly mentioned it before, but uh, I think it's called 53 Minutes or 58 Minutes. Um, It's a different author. Um, It's not starring John McLean, although it might as well be because it basically says like an ex-New York cop who is in an airport trying to stop terrorists who are keeping airplanes in the air. And if, if he doesn't, fix it in 53 minutes or 58 minutes, they're going to start crashing. So it, it borrows a lot of the plot point for sure, but um, it's, it's not specifically made for, or, or, you know, I think with, um, with him in mind. Okay, cool. Good to know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And then I was going to mention uh, Steven D'Souza also has, he has a couple of um, directing credits for mostly stuff you've never heard of, but one that did stand out to me was the street fighter movie. And I feel like that's enough said there. <laughs> Wait, the, the Van Damme one? Exactly, Ooh. yes. <laughs> Anybody who's seen that one knows that that is wild, to say the least. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, he wrote, of course, the screenplay for the first Die Hard movie. And even, um, I know we were talking about it, uh, uh, the future version of it a little bit, but um, the 1990 Die Hard video game for NES, he wrote the uh, story for, apparently. This is it 90s NES? Wow, I didn't know that. Interesting. Sounds like, yeah, and actually it seems to be a pretty well-rated game, so uh, I don't know. I think I missed that one in the 90s, but uh, I, I thought that was pretty funny as well. I, I wasn't really thinking about that there'd be screenwriters working on 
movies for NES. You know, I feel like that's the uh, the common mainstay these days, the amount of amazing writing going on in that market. But I wouldn't have guessed it for anything back then. That they were ahead of the curve there. Exactly. So uh, our movie stars Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia um, returning, uh, as well as an all-star 90s cast, including the likes of the aforementioned Reginald Val Johnson. You're in my favorite. Uh, <laughs> William Atherton, Franco Nero, William Sadler, John Amos, not to be confused with Stamos. No, nope. right? <laughs> And uh, NYPD Blue and Law & Order stars Dennis Franz and Fred Thompson. Se- um, and Se- then Senator the- Fred Thompson. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's actually really true, isn't it? Um, and then there's a bunch of tiny roles that I, I found that actually I was surprised I saw a bunch of them um, as I was going through it. Maybe I missed some, but I, I happened to notice a few that were like really blink and you miss them, like um, John Leguizamo, uh, Mark Boone Jr., Cole Meany, and Robert Patrick, who we'll circle back to in a yes, Robert, few minutes. Robert Patrick is like a blink and he's, he's gone in the movie. Uh, <laughs> also, I think, I think the girl who is the one that he borrows the stapler from in the beginning of the movie she did a bunch of things later on, but she was like, you know, blinking you missed her again, kind of a character. And uh, the the reporter also had a, um, I forget what her name is, but she was, she did a lot of stuff that back at, at that time. Totally. All right. So uh, before we go into when, other things, when, I, when, I, when Pete says totally, that means he's just blowing me off. He's like, you're wasting time. <laughs> Let's move on. This is a long no, conversation. Not at all. Not at all. It actually more means like, I, I'm agreeing, even though I probably don't remember them so well. <laughs> uh, but uh, the other thing um, that I want to mention, and, and um, I, I, this is something you and I had talked about offline, is um, I know that you had mentioned to me that the name of Die Hard 2 is an issue for you. Die Hard 2, Die Harder? Yes, I know you had kind of mentioned that you you know that was a little uh, sticky for you. <laughs> yeah, it's it just... I don't know. It feels like one of those things where you ever hear about movies that have been like renamed six or seven times because they can't land on something that feels right. And I feel like that was the case with this particular movie is they're like, what do we call Die Hard 2? It's got to be bigger than the first one. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Die Hard in an airport? No, that doesn't work. How about Die Hard, Die Harder? It just sounds dirty. <laughs> so dirty. I agree. Now, where does that land for you versus like break into electric boogaloo? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Enough said. Huh? Uh, so here's a fun fact for you. Okay. The movie's official title at release is Die Hard 2. Right. Just Die Hard 2. Okay. Um, so Die Harder was a tagline that they used for posters and things like that. Later on, marketing and releases and things like that started including it in the title around the mid-2000s, but I feel like you can safely ignore the Die Harder moniker, if you like. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's permanently embedded in my brain, so I think it's going to live there. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so last week, when last week, last month, I should say, uh, when we were doing Total Recall, I had a laundry list of notes and comments and thoughts regarding the film because I kind of watched it clean. This time, you went in with more fresh eyes than I did. And from what you've made it clear to me, you have quite a bit of notes on this film. <laughs> you could call it a dissertation, I think. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, I don't know why this ended up the way that it ended up. Um, but I sat there with my phone with the notes app and I kept like voice recording and, you know, my phone transcribes it to text, uh, notes for myself. And my wife came out partway through and was like, Oh my God, this is going to be a three hour long podcast. So I might have to ignore some of these, but I did end up with like four pages of <laughs> various little thoughts, observations, things like that. So, um, I, yeah, I can talk a bit about them and we can kind of go through it. I do want to preface by saying I actually really liked this movie upon rewatching. I thought it was fun. It's definitely um, 90s popcorn flick, check your brain at the door, schlock kind of thing. Lots of, you know, explosions and all sorts of things going on. Not all of it necessarily makes sense. And I will definitely poke at some of those. Mm -hmm. um, but I do want to just relate before I start picking on it too much that I really did like it. I, um, I'll have to go back and watch the other diehards kind of per our conversation and see where it's ultimately going to land for me amongst the others. But um, I definitely remembered it. Or I should say, I, I feel better about it than I remembered it, which was practically not at all. So, um, so yeah. So I could I could start listing off some of these things, and we can we can dish on it a bit. <laughs> Fire away! All right, Die Hard Two, Die Harder, The Notes. Okay, so first ones first. Okay, I'm really not clear on why his car was getting towed. Okay, it, it seems like he's waiting for his wife to show up. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like he could have just been simply driving his car around the loop. Um, so I guess maybe he had walked away from it. You know, like a moment later, it shows him going in and using the phone to uh, to call his wife. But it seemed like that was the first time he was calling her. So I don't know. What was he doing outside of his car that it, it got towed? You know, they just sort of threw you right in on that, that he's already getting his ticket. And, uh, you know, they start kind of giving you some exposition about what's going on with where the key players are, his kids are with his mother-in-law, he's borrowed his mother-in-law's car. And that it's Christmas, etc., etc. Exactly, you know, they throw you into all that, like, bang, right off the bat, you know, I mean, like, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, you know, hold back, it just throws that title at you, bam, bam, Die Hard 2, and then immediately, bam, bam, he's getting a ticket, but I don't know why he's getting that ticket. <laughs> so, it's funny you mention that, so, they do the, the bam, Die Hard 2, and then they pull that away, and it's to this great shot. I think it's the best shot in the whole film of the way the the tow truck is hitching up the car. And it just yeah. the way that they transition from the title to that moment is my favorite shot in the entire film. I don't know why. It just stylistically it looks really cool and it's interesting and something I'd never seen before. And I don't know if I've ever really seen it since, but I love that moment. But yes, it makes no sense why his car is getting towed. <laughs> Is, is he towed and ticketed? Right. Is he double parked? <laughs> double whammy. Is he is he double parked? Is he sitting there for hours? Like he doesn't establish. Oh, I've been in the airport like sitting around for four hours. Yeah, and just parked I mean, illegally. like the first second of the movie is him like running back. But I just like I don't know where he was. <laughs> like I have no idea why he was out of the car. He knows she's not there yet. I don't know. It was it was bizarre. There's definitely um, something that was cut to the editing room that felt that establishes <laughs> that whole thing. I think because there's no way. Yeah. It just opens on that. It, it it works in a way, but it makes no sense. And if, again, you, you suspend your disbelief and just say, okay, it's weird, but whatever, who cares? <laughs> Moving on. So again, you have to also take into consideration, these notes are kind of written in real time, so I'm going to kind of 
read them a little bit back as I wrote them in the moment. So I, I was also noting that that cop in the beginning was a real jerk. <laughs> you know, he's, he's begging his pardon that it's Christmas time and all this, and he was just being nasty. But it turns out later on in the movie that he becomes kind of a, an ongoing running uh, joke. Even oh, it, and he's like the, the main uh, Dennis Franz's uh, brother. Younger brother, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that actually ended up having a pretty good, uh, a pretty good payoff later. Uh, my next favorite thing is that he pulled out a pager. Um, and so, you know, we were talking a little bit of technology and total recall, but obviously they were futurizing the technology. So I was really happy to see a pager mm-hmm. <laughs> because that brought me instantly back to the nineties. Yeah. And like, if, if like everybody you knew had a pager, even like your, your friends in middle school, if they had a pager, that was the coolest, you right. know what I mean? And I, I don't know if anybody knows what those are anymore. Like they're probably just our younger listeners um, that probably saw him with that and are like, what the heck what is, is that? that? Like, I, and I realized that that also comes back to play a role later on in the movie too. Yeah. Now the, 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 the beeper plays a significant role in the movie in, in a couple of different moments. And it, again, it harkens back to that time. Like I remember my dad always had his beeper on him. He'd get, you know, someone call him in the office and he'd go find a phone and call, you know, his whatever. It was just kind of the thing. And, and it, it, is very true to the time. Obviously, it took place in that time period, so it makes sense. Yes, totally. My other favorite thing is you just called it a beeper, which is also completely the lingo of that time. Like pager officially, but beeper is what we definitely all called it. Oh, it, it's it'll forever will be a beeper. It didn't become a pager to me until you could send text messages to it and have like lines. That's fair. That's what I. Mean. <laughs> All right, so the next point, which um, I think you had maybe mentioned to me, and I think it even came up in our social media this week, was Naked Tai Chi. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah, so, like, I mean, again, I think I went into that a little bit prepared because I had heard that it was coming. Uh, you know, that's something that somehow I totally slipped my mind in and I had forgotten, but um, wow, yeah, that was, like, so out of left field, and I'm trying to figure out if... <laughs> If that's something that was in the original script and like they're like, you know, just trying to show how hardcore this guy is or if the actor showed up on set and was like, you know what, I'm going to make a choice right now. <laughs> you know, Like, oh, my God, that was that was different. <laughs> it, was, it was like, wait, like you didn't see that coming. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, naked, no. naked, and that was like, um, yeah, that was like no holds barred, like full on. butt, like, you know, like, and I was worried you were going to start maybe seeing some other stuff because that guy had a bit of a wide stance happening there. Yeah. So I don't know if they were doing a little tuck sort of stuff or something. But man, that, that got sketchy for a second there. But you know what's the best part of that naked Tai Chi moment is when he grabs the remote to turn off the television, he does it in like a Tai Chi movement. <laughs> that is- well, no. That's even the best part. So that's literally my next note is that it's not even Tai Chi. He whips around with that as if he's pulling a gun and shooting yes. somebody. <laughs> like it was so out of left field. Like, and like, you know, especially if you're going to take that character at face value for like, all right, he's like this hardcore Colonel sort of dude. He's like, you know, they allude that he had like fought in like Guantanamo or something like that. But like, what a, goofy thing for a character like that to do like all right i could almost get over like the naked tai chi like that's like hardcore sort of you know steven seagal-esque almost sort of thing to do but then to whip around and turn off that tv or turn on the tv whatever it was as if he's like shooting it like a gun i was like that's something like i would do as a kid you know what i mean like that's like using like the force or something to like turn off the tv you know like that was really goofy yeah it was so like 
okay, whatever, cool. He, he's he's hardcore. I get it. And I I think you know what it is. I I really believe they were trying to establish him to be so much different than Hans Gruber, but be equally as intimidating that they had to like figure out how to make this guy seem nuts. You know, totally. And you know what? I think it sets a tone that kind of then stays through the rest of the movie. <laughs> and it's, it's not only then the tone that is applied to him, it's applied to everybody that is in his crew is sort of tied in and working with him, yeah. which actually is like the very next thing I have written down here, which is that as the goons are all coming out of the hotel doors, which I love, they all have like their own little separate rooms and they're all like right next door to each yeah. other, but they're all coming out of the hotel doors, perfect synchronization, all carrying their presence. And then again, coming back to what I was mentioning a few minutes ago, one of them, is the T-1000 himself, Robert Patrick. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is pretty cool. We immediately have two degrees, one degree of separation from Total Recall. We could do the Kevin Bacon game, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because you have the T-1000. We, we were talking about our, our good old friend T-100 last month there. So uh, that was very funny that he popped up. I got really excited. Now, that said, he kind of like doesn't do much after that. You know, like, yeah, he's got like, you know, it's like little shootouts and things later on, but he is not a, a key player. I was excited he might become a key player I, in this, but he's just I don't uh, even remember if he has a speaking line in the whole movie. He may have one I don't line. remember him having one, yeah. It was just more like I saw his face and I was like, wow, I know him. <laughs> um, so, uh, skipping slightly forward here, he gets onto the phone and I really liked the line, Honey, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, fax machines, airphones. And then he says... I think progress peaked with frozen pizza. <laughs> so I, I liked both of those lines. I, I liked his little comeback because of course, like we were talking about, he's full of all these like weird little one liners. Yeah. Um, but I, I really liked that because like that was the peak of technology, microchips, microwaves, fax machines, and airphones. Yes. <laughs> now I have a, an after the fact note after watching the movie note that comes back to this line, which was, why did nobody think to call her on that airphone to like warn them that they should take the plane and go somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't that, that it just goes away. Like it, he, he, but because he called her right because she beeped him and, she, and he called her right. He called her, and then not only that, several other times throughout the movie, some form whether it's the same one or another one of airphone on that plane is used for other plot points. Um, which I'll get back to again when we get to it. But uh, yeah, that phone is like a key player in the movie, but like nobody, you know, cause like obviously they, they were trying to like find ways around where like the, uh, the rogue group there would be able to hear, you know, that they were trying to let the planes know, but that seems like a really easy one. They could have at least let, you know, he could have personally at least let his wife know, like, hey, go to the go, staff know. <laughs> go to Baltimore. You know, Baltimore's not too yeah, far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fly somewhere else, anywhere else, you know. Um, so it, that seems like a big oversight because he's really, and, and I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but he's like, you know, he's got a sharp kind of set of eyes and a mind on him that he didn't like think to run back to the phone when everything went down and be like, hey, you know, I could call her back on that earphone. So right. yeah, that that seemed a little 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 bit of a, a misstep but uh, we're gonna find some more of those <laughs> well, I, I found that die hard 2 shockingly is a movie that has got some plot holes in it <laughs> or like or even still why couldn't somebody call, like one of the air traffic controllers call another airport to then communicate with the planes 
Yeah, I mean, I think once you establish that one plane has an air phone, it's likely that others have air phones and they could just start literally calling all of them. But right. again, we'll we'll forgive and forget that one. There are going to be more after that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So my next favorite thing was um, his wife is talking with an old lady who's sitting on the plane oh, next to her in the seat immediately next to her. And um, among other wacky stuff that that lady says, she mentions that um, for, for no other reason um, that, well, she pulls out a taser and she's talking about that. Uh, but she admits for, for basically no other reason than experimenting um, or experimentally doing so that um, she zapped her dog with it and that it like limped around for weeks afterwards. <laughs> like, why, old lady? Why zap your dog? <laughs> like, could you have found somebody else? I don't know. That, that, I, I mean, uh, that kind of threw me off her right quick. I felt very bad for her poor little dog, <laughs> wherever he is. So the one thing that you're pointing out here in several notes is a lot of times things get established in the very beginning of this movie that yes. come, come back later to pay off, which which they do. I like in a way like they didn't just it wasn't a one off like, oh, she's got a taser. What does that mean? So I'll jump off my notes to actually completely concur with you on that one. There's several other points in this movie, and I'll mention some of them later, that they do some dumb little thing, and you're like, why, in that moment? And then it comes back to pay off. So I actually have to give Steven D'Souza, or you know, <laughs> directing whoever else that thought of these things, a lot of credit, um, because there are some really fun little things where you go, oh, <laughs> that was great. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like, you see why some of those things come in. But even though the taser comes back into play, I do still feel bad for her pup <laughs> who needlessly got tasered full, full bolt for, for just the sake of her trying it out, I guess. Yeah. But you gotta think of it. How big was that dog? Because a small dog probably wouldn't have made yeah. one well, shot. That's the thing. Like, and I don't know why this is. Cause I don't remember if she said, but like, I picture a Jack Russell and yes. I just picture that poor bugger being like, eh, I, 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 like just, you know, yeah, I don't know why. You do visualize a small dog, which talks about it, which is pretty funny. Anyway. So my next favorite, um, which I thought was funny because I love this movie trope, and this happened so much in the 90s, is the chance meeting with the villain that the two of them bump into each other. Right before mm -hmm. they meet up again later, they they kind of are like, "Oh, you look familiar." And it's like, "Oh, I'm on TV." And it's like, "Oh, me too," or something like that. Yeah. Um, and like later on, like they're like, "Oh, you're John McLean." Oh, you're Colonel such and such. And like they know each other mm -hmm. then. Like, but they kind of like bump and like they're like, "I think I know you," but I kind of can't place you. I thought that was funny. I always love that trope of like the hero and the villain literally bumping into each yeah. other in the middle of the movie, only to meet violently again later yeah no, it is a, it is a good moment in the movie because it's like oh my goodness he's that close to him oh my god he could have got him right there i know all right so the next one up on my list is uh the poor little old man at the church who says a piece of me is dying along with this church and oh. the guy's like you're right about that and he shoots the old guy um I, I, poor old guy rip Rip old guy. <laughs> We're sorry to see you go. I think you're the elevator guy of, of total recall. Yeah. <laughs> you, you took the bullet to get our story going. <laughs> um, so my next one, which uh, this is another 30 year prism thing that I, I got a kick out of was that um, John McClane, who's a bit of a smokestack was just freely smoking in the airport terminal, just lighting those cigarettes up everywhere he goes. <laughs> but I don't know if, you got to think like 30 years ago that might have been allowed 
I, it totally was. And I actually, I would even venture to guess it might still have been that you were allowed to smoke on airplanes at that point. I, 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 I don't think, know when that went out. I think on some um, airlines, not all airlines, but I think on some airlines they had smoking sections still. Totally, yeah. I think when you go back to movies in the 70s and maybe even some of the 80s, you'll definitely see people smoking on airplanes. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to remember in real life. It started to get phased out, but I don't remember how soon. In, in the film, though, when they cut to some of the different airplanes, not necessarily Holly's airplane, but some of the other planes, this this is like like haze in the air as if it looks like these people have been smoking. Yeah. At it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, it, it feels 90s. It's like, oh, yeah. I do remember like going to diners and places, and you, and you see the smoking section that has that like haze around it, like this little yellowing of it. It's so <laughs> gross, so disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I know you mentioned the other day in your in your kind of quick um, recall of it um, that he kind of then ends up in that um, luggage area, but I really liked how um, he just flashed his badge for a moment and like this NSA guy that was just standing there was like, all right, he just like opened it. (laughs) I thought that was very trusting of him. I don't don't think you get that in an airport anymore. Even if you are like an official police officer where you just went up and you're like, badge, you know, like, you know, like plain clothes, like the guy's just like, all right, yeah, go into our luggage area. I'm not coming with you. Just go by yourself. Sounds (laughs) great. See you later. Enjoy. Yeah. All right, so uh, my next point is a little bit of love for John McClane as a character. So I love John McClane's ability to improvise. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of the Jackie Chan of um, action movies. Um, so, uh, you know, I love that um, there's like a shot where like he drops his gun and it goes up the conveyor belt. And like rather than just like chasing that up the conveyor belt, he just kind of is like, Ugh. and then next thing you know, the conveyor belt brings along a set of golf clubs and you're like, all right. This is great foreshadowing. He's about to grab some golf clubs. Mm-hmm. The downside of that is he like smacks the guy with it one time. The guy like barely flinches and then they just end up in like a complete like fist fight. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I thought that was kind of funny because I was like, I, I don't know. I thought he was like going to like really go to town on him, you know, like four or something like that. Like, which maybe he did say and I don't remember. Um, but I, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> he also uses the hairspray as well and, and blasts the guy in the eyes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Which actually the guy seems to also completely shrug off a moment yeah. later. Like he has like sort of no lasting <laughs> damage from that. Um, so by the way, um, I don't know um, about you, but I'd really like to visit an airport luggage area. <laughs> it looks fascinating between that. So when I rewatched it, it reminded me of Toy Story 2. When they're going yes. to the luggage area, and I was like, this looks like the most fun place on earth to see all these luggage. Totally. Like, I mean, like, you know, the um, the painting, they do it in movies, where it's like, it just stares to all over the place. Yes. It, <laughs> yeah, it, like it, upside down and everything. Yes. Yeah. It kind of feels like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I think I've always in my head pictured these luggage areas as that. And I think it's a result of movies like this, because in reality, it can't be that entertaining. But, like, this one was so fun. It was almost like a steel factory. Like, there was, like, random, like, steam vents blasting off and, like, pulsing orange lights. And, like, it was, like, really insane back there. So I I really hope they look like that in in real life. I'm curious if anybody um, out there in the listening world has ever had chance, if, if they work with an airline or something, to go back in one of those areas. Maybe contact us on social media, which we're, we're going to um, list our social medias at the end. But let us know on social media if you've ever seen one. I'm curious if they're that wacky. Uh, back in the real world. <laughs> so next one on my list is the guy getting crushed by that luggage roller oh, or whatever that yeah. thing was. His face <laughs> with it. Yeah, that's brutal. So uh, that is super 
questionable to me because you know for a fact that there's pieces of luggage coming up that elevator that are definitely bigger than a human body or face is. Mm-hmm. But somehow, like when he got to it, it like goes over his face and like stops on his neck and like grinds him, grinds him down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure that that thing wasn't built with any safety features, but I also feel like he would just kind of like roll underneath it and be okay. <laughs> you know? It seemed odd that somehow he would be completely like obliterated by that, but. We'll, we'll let that one slide as well. <laughs> so next favorite thing, absolutely priceless, was him riding the bicycle after the guy and like dinging the bell as he jumps on him. Yes. I love that. You know, like, I don't know that there even was a bell on that bike. Like, if you go look at it, like in the footage, you don't even see a bell. But like some genius in like the sound editing decided to add in a little like tingling. <laughs> and I thought that was a really great little um, moment as he's going to like chase that guy down on it and, and jump onto him. No, that was good. All right. So I'm jumping back to the airplane now. All right. So um, the guy um, that's also on the plane, and I guess he must have been in the first movie. I wasn't remembering him so well. Um, Richard Thornburg. Yes. He's well. He, uh, he's the reporter that goes to Holly's house in Die Hard 1 and like gets footage of their children on television. And that's when, at the end of the movie, Holly punches him in the, and breaks his nose. Yeah, they make mention of that. Like, I know, like, the, the stewardess, uh, as they call her, you know, not, not, a, not a no longerly used uh, term for flight attendants, but the stewardess comes over and, and sort of is like, oh, I owe you some champagne or something, you yeah. know, because he was being a jerk. But that's actually my next point, all right? So I have two points on him. First one is that he somehow only notices that he's sitting next to somebody who he's had a restraining order against in the last half hour of this flight. Mm -hmm. And like, he's like right next to her, you know, like like he's like, he's in the center aisle. She's on the side, but like, you know, like four or five feet away. And he's only just now noticing that. Um, I thought that was a little bizarre. And then the, um, the other odd kind of thing that he's got going on is when you're introduced to him, he's like demanding to either be like let into first class or to get like a meal um, from first class, which again, we're talking about a flight from Los Angeles that is five and a half hours. They go on to mention that it's a five and a half hour flight. Mm-hmm. And because we've dated this by the phone call that John McClane has had with his wife previously, he said to her, I will see you in 30 minutes. So they are five hours into a five and a half hour flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he has not noticed this woman next to him. And he's asking for first class admittance and a meal five and a half hours in. And if you know about an airplane, the last half hour is descent. They're not serving you anything at this point. So this becomes a sticking point for me. And I think that this was a big script continuity oversight that John McClane got off the phone with her and said, I'll see you in a half an hour. Because the timing of this flight does not sync up to them only having 30 minutes left. And again, like, I'll come back to that. (laughs) There's some other times that they get into this, but that 30 minute thing was a big problem for this movie to, to, to piggyback on that. I also don't know if, if they're in descent, usually those phones were disabled at that point. Like everyone's in their seat, ready to go. Yeah. You would think, yeah. But here's the other part about that is, so he's a famous newscaster in Hollywood and she is like, the executive vice president, almost basically the CEO of her of the Nakatomi Corporation, because uh, Takagi in the first movie uh, was killed, and she said she was the number two person. So why are they both not in first class? 
Yeah, why isn't she in first class? That's actually a really good point, too. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. They they were really um, pushing that first class thing I thought was kind of funny. All right, so I have some weird little things that I've noticed, and this was just one of them, that uh, there's a point where one of the goons, you know, all those goons ended up over at the, uh, the church airport. and Well, at the airport to start, and they, they only really needed, like, one or two guys to basically get into that luggage area and, and set that little, you know, radio beacon thing or whatever it is that they were doing. But, you know, even like the colonel was there and like he's getting spotted by like the reporter and things like that, which I thought was really bizarre. But it's, eventually they end up um, back over at the church and the guy that did get away um, comes in to see him. And I thought this was just like a really weird filmmaker choice that the colonel is like sort of looking at like some blueprints on the table. And then like this huge amount of snow gets like dumped in front of him. And then, like, as the shot, like, pulls out, there's, like, no snow on the guy. <laughs> so, like, I was, like, somebody off, you know, the side of the screen had, like, a bucket of snow. And they just, like, dumped this, like, big, big, you know, cup full or something of this snow onto the thing. I, I, I mean, I, I guess I understand why they did it. But I think they could have also gotten away with the guy just walking up from behind him and saying, hey, or something. So I thought that was a, a little bit funny. Um. So next thing, again, jumping a little bit forward is uh, McLean goes in um, to talk with the captain of the the police. Um, and I, I had another funny sticking point here, which is that he's like really adamant about them um, dusting for prints. And ultimately, I go on later as the story progresses to understand, I guess, why he wanted that. But I thought that was really funny um, <laughs> in that moment, because like the guy is dead. I'm like, what do you need to dust for? You've got the dead guy, which I guess he must then realize obviously a couple minutes later because he goes in and does the fingerprints on the guy. But I thought it was really funny that he's like, dust for prints and meanwhile they've got the guy right there on the gurney. <laughs> so I, I think it's a combination of, he says later on about the type of gun that they pulled on on him and they're like, this is not just a normal type of a gun that you, know, you would just get anywhere. And he goes into saying something about it being a porcelain gun that can't be detected by rate, uh, metal detectors. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's in this scene, I think, yeah. or, or it's slightly little, later, little maybe. Yeah. Later, yeah. Totally, yeah. So, I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of funny because even um, Dennis Franz then is like, well, dust the whole place, you know? And I was like, I think we can skip the dusting. The guy is, is right there. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so uh, kind of, again, in that same scene, they're getting into this massive argument about shutting down the area, which I also thought was funny because, you know, like they brought the guy's corpse like out into like the main part of the airport, which I right, thought was right a little in the middle bizarre. of everything. There's a hundred thousand people there and they're pulling out a dead body and uh, like, Christmas you know, Eve. They're talking about shutting it down, shutting it down. I'm like, that was a sealed area. Like they could have just kept that whole thing in that luggage area. I'm sure there's a back door because they have to get out to the airplanes. Right. Could have probably just taken the stiff out the back door. So I thought that was also kind of, again, it, it serves the plot slightly in so much as that, like that reporter that's nosing around the whole time yeah. is like, hey, you know, like she's always like right in the middle of everything. But um, I, I don't know that they also needed to lock down the area. They could have probably kept that hush hush, maybe outside of people hearing the gun sounds or mm -hmm. whatever. All right. So but even uh, still, another one. Like, did you picture how loud that luggage area was? Even if there were gunshots, they might not have heard it outside that room because it was so. Maybe, loud. yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know what the soundproofing for that's like or whatever. But again, it it goes back to what I was even saying with Total Recall last week that there was like a whole gun battle and like the people above it were oblivious to it. 
guns are pretty loud. They <laughs> are know, pretty like, loud. Yeah. You, would, you would think so it would set some people off, especially then even like later on when they're in the uh, the other like under construction wing of the the airport. You know, like you would think that that might echo a gigantic fully automatic gun battle. Oh, but please. I digress. We'll, we'll get into that in a little while. That's a that's a whole other. So thing. yeah, I've got some for that for sure too. So. Next again, and this is again still um, part of that. It's the end of that scene. Um, is I, I really liked the uh, the line um, where he says to Dennis Franz, "What sets the off a metal detector first? The lead in your or the in your brains?" Well, uh, this is that's cute, and I love that, and it made me laugh. But since when does set off a metal detector? <laughs> That would be one heck. Like, that would be one heck of a metal detector, I'll tell you. Holy yeah, or, or one heck of a you know sh double. You yeah. know. <laughs> what are you eating, sir? What are you eating? <laughs> All right. So um, my next, and again, we 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 touched on this, but the Al Powell cameo was fabulous. I I loved that, and it really reinforced for me exactly what you were saying that like he couldn't have just become like the man in the chair for him. That like he couldn't just like in future movies like contact him and be like Al, could you look up this thing or whatever because Al has some hookups, man. Yeah, he got that info off those prints right real quick, quick. <laughs> real quick. Now, on the flip side, I'm a little sad that the Al Powell cameo. It, certainly, it was a cameo and it was worth seeing him again. But I'm sad that it was reduced to a gigantic Twinkie commercial. Yeah, <laughs> like that was a big old Twinkie product placement. And I was trying to do a little due diligence, like you did. I definitely saw some. Pepsi products. I saw some cigarette products that I won't um, name. Uh, I definitely saw some other products um, listed throughout the rest of this uh, this movie. But uh, that was a big one. Yeah. That he calls him up and he's like, "What are you eating a Twinkie?" And like, sure enough, he was eating a Twinkie. And then he carries this Twinkie around, like facing out with him the whole rest of that mm-hmm. scene. I was like, "All right, Al Powell and Twinkie, my friends." So, you know, you can almost imagine a commercial on TV at that time mm-hmm. that's like promoting that movie, but also promoting Twinkie. <laughs> And so now Al Powell in 2020 is the spokesperson for diabetes since uh, Wilford Brimley is gone. R.I.P. <laughs> exactly. You can cut that part out. I had to say it, though. I just felt, felt good. So. Oh, no, that definitely. <laughs> so I've got another note here, and I'm, I'm maybe a little lost on my own note. So this note says only has to look at the other guy's face for 15 to 20 minutes. So somehow only 10 minutes of time has gone by in this flight. So I think I'm trying to keep track of of how much time has gone by in the flight. That must have been oh I, I remember what it was. The uh, somebody on the plane, whether his I think it's his wife, says, "Oh, I only have to look at that guy's face for another fifteen or twenty minutes." Mm-hmm. So again, like we're we're dating some time here. So again, uh, you know, at least ten minutes of time seems to have gone by real world from when John McClane was like, "I'll see you in about a half an hour." You know, she's now dating that she's anticipating this flight only being 15 or 20 minutes. So they've definitely started their descent or they're at least like looping the airport at this point to be only 15 or 20 minutes yeah, out. Because okay? they haven't even shut down the airplanes yet. Like at that point when she says that. Exactly. This is still way before a lot of that stuff. This is still when they have communications, things like that. So this is where some of this timing gets really hinky for me. You know what I mean? And I feel like this is a big writing oversight that they didn't just bake like an extra hour. Like I only have to look at that guy's face for another hour, you know, uh, honey, for whatever reason I'm at the airport, I got here early, but um, I'll see you in two hours. You right. know? Even if her flight had been delayed or something like that, they could have written something like that. But the, this is where some of this timing still gets more and more bizarre. And there's more examples of this as we go. 
But I just want to put this pin in it that, again, at least 10, 15 minutes has gone by since he's been on the phone with her as she's anticipating this flight only lasting about another 15 to 20 minutes. Right. That's it. Okay. So, um, so the next thing again is, and this is what you were pointing out. He's with that, um, uh, woman that's at the car rental place that he had borrowed the, uh, the print thing from the little stamper plate. And she's kind of like hitting on him. And, uh, what's funny is I remember this scene. Oh yeah. Now I don't know why I only remember this scene. Uh, specifically because so much of the movie was very fuzzy for me, but I very much remember this because his response to her is that he like wiggles his wedding ring at her. Like that's kind of like, she's like hitting on him and he kind of like wiggles his ring. And I remembered earlier on in like my, um, fiance life and married life (laughs) that like under the auspices that I was ever somewhere by myself and under the, whatever circumstances somebody was hitting on me, which I feel like is, Maybe not the most likely thing, but but on that chance that I was going to do that same thing. I really liked that, that I was going to like hold the ring up and like wiggle it like he did. Mm-hmm. So it's really bizarre why I remember that one thing, but like most of the rest of the movie, I don't. So I thought that was a personally interesting note uh, on a misfire in my brain. <laughs> you know what it is? It harkens back to the first movie because he admits that he was the problem in their marriage. That's why they got separated in the first place. And I Does he do that same thing in the first movie? No, well, he doesn't have his wedding ring on, or maybe... Uh, no, he does. She doesn't. And he kind of... Maybe that's where I'm getting it from. Maybe he did it in somebody in the first movie. Maybe that's like another little character trait he carried over. It's something like that. And also, I think it also establishes that, hey, he's trying to work on his marriage and stuff like that. So, like, Definitely. You know, he, Although he ends up divorced, doesn't he? <laughs> he yes, by the third movie, he's divorced <laughs> again. Yes. Man, what the heck happened between those two? <laughs> We'll get to that, I guess, at the end of the movie. Yeah. So um, so the next note I have here is that um, reporter. And again, I, I can't remember the reporter's name, but man, is she a Hawkeye? Um, because earlier in the movie, she identified from like across the uh, the busy, busy you know, Christmas time pavilion, Colonel Stewart. And then she did it again just now with John McClane. Um, yeah. Man, what a Hawkeye. And that she like, you know, the two of them couldn't recognize each other. And again, you could argue she's a reporter. But that she's like, oh, that's Colonel Stewart. Oh, that's John McClane. You know, like she knew exactly who they were. So hats off to you, lady, man. Like she was really like picking these people out from a distance. I thought that was very impressive. I'm watching a lot of hard copy. <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah, exactly. This is a really bizarre note. OK, so he was up in the control tower. And maybe this is how a control tower works or worked at that time. Because, you know, control towers have that big funky shape that they're like, they look like a water tower they got like that like big long stand and then the top portion of it bows out and like you know they can have people you know sort of looking out of it at all directions but one and i don't know god again i apologize ahead i don't know why this i noticed this and it bothered me there's this bank of monitors behind him that's in like the center of it and they just keep going up and down and up and down and up and down (laughs) it was the most bizarre thing like it just kind of kept going up down up down up down behind him almost like somebody that was on set that day, like realized it could do it. And therefore they should like, (laughs) it was really distracting me away from him and everything like this weird bank of green monitors that were just going up and down and up and down and up and down like this weird arm behind him. So I know really random thought. (laughs) Okay. So at this point in the movie, and again, this is a, a definitely a note to this moment in the movie I've written here that he's just bought two hours of time, right? They say something like that. I'd be like, you've just bought two hours of time. So at this point, you know, like 
the, everything's gone down. You know, they know that the uh, terrorists, the rogue army faction has, has caused all the troubles. Um, but if they have all these troubles, why don't they just divert them to places like New York, which would be within a two hour window? Or you mentioned before Baltimore, which would be in like a very quick um, motion, you know, from there. Th- there's no reason that they would keep these planes circling around this particular airport. Right. Essentially, if a control tower goes out of communication, if they lose communication, 20 minutes, there's a hard airline limit that the planes, if they don't hear from them, they just go somewhere else. They leave and they go somewhere else. They assume that there's a problem at that airport and they just leave. (laughs) So they bought them two hours of time, but like those planes could have gone anywhere. And like they make a comment later on in the movie that they like started to divert some planes elsewhere except for basically the ones that were like completely running on fumes but again as you say if you know anything about like dulles and the surrounding area there's other airports <laughs> you know in that vicinity that they could completely go to so i thought that that was also a slight plot hole that we would have to excuse them on um but anybody that knows anything about air travel and this doesn't take needing a pilot i just mean like if you've ever even been on an airplane that's been diverted somewhere, you know, it wasn't like a big to do for them to just go elsewhere. They wouldn't have hundreds of planes just circling this one airport with nothing else for them to do. And they even make some comments like, oh, don't worry. We always make sure there's enough fuel that we could get somewhere else. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought that so, was that was interesting. So to piggyback on one of the things you said was about um, the plane doesn't hear from the tower within 20 minutes. They reroute or whatever. But the military guys have tapped into it, and they've set up their own fake uh, tower, and they just don't establish that they're communicating with the planes all that much, other than maybe a few sentences here and, and i do yeah i think i'm going to come back to that but again like you know there's a point where like one of the pilots even says something like all i'm hearing is beeping like like nobody's there on the other end it's as if there's nobody there um, you know, so like even with things like that, you think that would cue them to be like, you know what, we should probably get going, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it, it, it just seemed weird. And they have several other things that they say and do in the movie that sort of kind of seem to, to kind of be weird on that. So here's another timing thing. And this is one I'm almost willing to excuse as <laughs> being a flashback scene. OK, but again, you know, we've been talking about the timing of this movie is really all over the place. So at this moment in time in the movie. Um, and I have it written down here that this might be 58 minutes into the movie. Um, yeah, I think I wrote that down as a note. Um, Esperanza's plane, the plane that's transporting Esperanza, Mm. um, also kind of does like a check-in with somebody. I don't know who, um, but they say that they're going to be landing their plane in three and a half hours. (laughs) Okay. That's right. So... Again, if you take this as being in real time with the other events that are happening at this moment in the movie, so that would establish that means that, that, that Holly's plane will have been in the air for like nine straight hours. Exactly. That that she was going to be landing any moment, and now they're got a full other three and a half hours that they're just going to be circling the airport. So if they're that far out. I think the army guys mistimed when they did their stuff because they could have probably let a few more hours go by. So I'm going to assume that this is a flashback scene, even though they don't give it that open context. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt that that's going to be a flashback to several hours beforehand. Right. Seemed like an odd choice, 
instead of saying three and a half hours, they could have said one hour or half hour. And that might have been a little bit more in the in the vein. But they gave it three and a half hours. So <laughs> whoever's doing the timing, whether it's the uh, script continuity person or, or the original screenwriter, somebody was just like doing a little bit of wacky tobacco or something <laughs> when they were <laughs> writing in these hours because they were getting a little forgetful. Um, so next thing I have here is I like when John McClane is talking to himself and he breaks the fourth wall and he has this um, great quote where he's like, how could the same happen to the same guy twice? Yeah. <laughs> I really liked that moment, you know, because like that's a total fourth wall moment. He might as well have just looked dead in the eyes of the audience and like done like a little like. Wah, wah. <laughs> but <laughs> like, also it, it, it harkens back to when he's crawling through the air ducts in Nakatomi Tower where he's talking to himself. He says, Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. It's the same <laughs> yeah, exactly. kind of thing. And, 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 and he does do those moments where he talks to himself. But yes, he does. That that particular line is my probably one of my favorite in the whole movie. But yes, it is basically a. And there's another like that moment. too. And I think it's actually previous to where I'm talking about where you and I kind of said it like he's the right guy in the wrong, like at the wrong at the right in the wrong place or something like yeah. that. But like somebody in this movie, one of them says to him, and I can't remember again if it's now or later. They're like, you're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I was like, I thought that was also kind of, uh, kind of funny. Did you watch the X-Men cartoon as a kid? Did you buy Spider-Man number one the day it came out? Did you collect superhero trading cards and action figures? Then have we got the podcast for you. That's right, it's... Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The exciting show where Adam, that's me. And Michael, that's me. We'll take you through the 90s comic book boom, through the pages of Wizard Magazine, one issue at a time. We have so much fun reliving that crazy time of chromium covers and speculative comic book buying. Plus, we get to see where this whole hubbub about superhero movies really began. So we invite you to join us every other week on the Retro Network podcast feed. We can't wait to go back in time and uh, flip through those comic books you used to read. So we'll see you then. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. Oh, so another weird little thing, because this scene was very kind of uh, weird for me is he kind of then walks like a couple other steps like down in the hallway or he meets like the janitor guy and the guy is going to set him up with finding how he gets over to like this other terminal. And rather than just like walking in a normal fashion to the other terminal, he sends him through the air duct for whatever reason. Somehow that was the fastest way to get there, which, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. You know, that way he at least gets in his ventilation duct. Um, but <laughs> this scene is so weird because he like walks into this tiny room and the shot is wide enough that you see him and the duct and he spends several seconds like, where's that duct? Where's that duct? And it's like a gigantic air duct. Like, literally, if he, like, stretches his right arm out, he'd be touching it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, you think he'd notice what an air duct was at this point in his life? He's been in quite a few at this point in his career. Yes. Now, um, I'm drawing a blank. But didn't he not freeze the fan propeller that can crawl through or doesn't the propeller <laughs> you know if there was that i didn't notice it um but that probably is another exactly like you know, oh well <laughs> i think he kind of just like plugs the cover off and goes in so i don't know maybe it just disconnects 
Um, so we're moving over now. Obviously, he gets over into this big uh, gunfight with the guys in that in next the area. New terminal. Like they, they, yeah, they established earlier that there's a, a new terminal, and this is the one under construction. Yeah. yeah, they send the SWAT guys with the one like engineering sort of dude um, over to to see if they can tap into this like array that's for whatever reason outside the new terminal. The SWAT guys get gunned down. The the uh, engineer guy is almost killed by Robert Patrick. I think, mm-hmm. or somebody else, maybe one of the other guys, I forget. And uh, next thing you know, he comes, you know, flying out of his uh, duct and he gets into this gunfight. Um, but I had a moment in this that I really liked because it was a cool gunfight. I, I got to admit, it was a really nice gunfight. Um, but I really liked that he gets under that like scaffolding and the guy's shooting down oh, at him the through scaffolding. the scaffolding. I, know you, I was waiting for you to talk about this. I wait, I wanted and he to- pushes it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you want to dive in, yeah. What was your, what were you going to say? So he pushes the scaffolding over, which yes. if you've ever seen scaffolding in real life, there's no possible way <laughs> a, a singular human being could push that thing over. It would be with a guy on it, with, with a, the weight with of a, a guy, guy on, on it, it. <laughs> and filled with paint and plywood and whatever. Wood, it's, yeah. It's, it's got to be, you know, 20,000 pounds, I would say. Huh? You know, but as it falls... What did you notice as it falls? Well, this was my point, is that, like, this ridiculous dummy yes, gets put the in. the dummy. I was waiting for that. <laughs> they have this overhead shot where it, like, falls on the dummy, and, like, I had to freeze frame it, and I tried to capture a picture of it. I'm going to see if I can get a better screen cap to share on social. But it's so funny because it's, like, it looks nothing at all like the guy that it was falling on. And, like, even though the guy's already, like, on the ground, like, his knee is bent at, like, this completely unnatural, like, 90-degree angle, like, facing outward. It was so funny because, like, they didn't try to, like, really fake it well enough. Like, the shots were slightly too long. So, like, you just blatantly see this dummy that <laughs> the scaffolding falls down on. I loved that. That made me LOL yeah, in a big bad way. It's a great <laughs> moment. I was like, oh, I can't wait till he sees the dummy. The dummy's the best part. <laughs> so good. So uh, one of my favorite things in the movie, and this goes back to what we were talking about before with little things that get paid off, is when the SWAT team is coming up the um, human walkway thing earlier on, Mm -hmm. um, the guy that's like the painter, like the fake painter at the end of it, just like turns it off. And like, you're like, okay, you know, like, why would he do that? Why would he like necessarily like key the SWAT team guys in? He could just like let them still keep coming towards him, which actually would put them at a tactical disadvantage because they'd be, like, working against coming towards him, and, like, they could still just shoot them. You know, like, he kind of keys them in by, like, turning it off, you know, which I thought was a little bit of an odd choice. But then it pays off in one of my favorite things in the movie, which is that the guy's gun gets jammed, and he's like, I'm going to come kill you now. And he's, like, walking down that walking thing at him, and he's lost his gun several feet onto it, and he presses the button, and it brings his gun to him, (laughs) and he shoots the guy. I thought that was awesome. It is awesome. That was... That was 100% a correct, awesome, amazing moment. I loved that. <laughs> um, so let's see here. What's my next thing? So this, I guess we're back on the airplane now. So uh, when Thornburg um, goes to his buddy and asks him to tune into the airport radio station, mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted to know how that guy just automatically knew how to find those airport frequencies. Like, I don't know what that scanner was that he had outside of like, yeah, he's like a news reporter or whatever. Like maybe they could like key into like, you know, police or fire frequencies. So they could like do a little ambulance chasing or something. But it struck me really odd that he just had like 
the exact like tower frequency on hand for that airport that he could just listen in on like the uh, FAA airport frequencies. You'd think that would be a little bit of more of a carefully guarded frequency or something. <laughs> well, you gotta remember, you know, we think of things differently now post nine eleven. It might have been less secure back then. That's true. But again, they're arguably thirty thousand feet in the air. Could a, a I mean, shortwave like radio being, you know, well, I mean, if it can get to the airplane, it could get to that, I'm assuming, because, you know, they're broadcasting. It's more about, I guess, the broadcast range from the airport. But he just found that like lickety split. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't even like, yes, give me 20 minutes and I'll see what I can do. He was like, yeah, like, all right. Yeah. And then like 15 seconds later, he had it. Mm-hmm. So it just, I don't know, that, that, I thought that was a little funny. Um, uh, there's another little line really quick, uh, where they mention about like trying to use signal lights. Um, and the guy goes like, what are we going to do? Borrow them from Batman? I thought that was a little good quote. I wanted to, to throw that in there for you. Yes, I thought that was, that was fun. It is a good quote. I, I will concur. <laughs> yes. Um, and then uh, speaking of, of radios, um, Marvin the janitor um, has now found the radio that was dropped in the beginning. And I was wondering about that because I saw them like cut to a shot of the radio dropping. And I thought maybe John McClane would find it. But Marvin, uh, wonderful Marvin, who is like saving the day from behind the scenes, uh, has found the radio and and like has um, magically found the one that had the code sequence broken because they had found one other, but like the code sequence was like scrambling it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, it could have like 8 million, you know, combinations or something. So I was happy that he found the one that just happened to be uh, descrambled. And he just was like hanging on to that, chilling so, with it. <laughs> so one of the biggest problems I've had with both Die Hard and Die Hard one and, and Die Hard, uh, Die Hard one is a near perfect movie. Die Hard 2 has its flaws, but they both make this one fatal error when it comes to the radios. If you've ever used a CB radio or a two-way walkie-talkie or whatever, two people cannot talk at the same time. (laughs) And they do this in Die Hard 1, and they do it in Die Hard 2 Die Harder, because they'll be having an argument and both people will be pressing the button at the same time. And I'm like, you can't talk at the same time with both people pressing the button. It doesn't work like that. That's true. Yeah, I guess that's just like a dopey movie thing to get past them, like having to be like, uh, what'd you say? I, I talked over the top of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So uh, now we're back over with Esperanza on the like cargo military plane that's coming in. And... I had a couple thoughts about this one. So first is that he um, kills the pilots for kind of no reason. Um, <laughs> you know, like he, he uh, we've already seen him kill the single soldier, which I think is also a confusing point. Like, why is there a rookie soldier with him on this airplane? If he's like this, you know, dangerous criminal um, drug cartel, yet also military, you know, seemingly like leader of a foreign country sort of thing. And they've got one, one guy watching him, guard. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, so he's already he choked out that poor guy. There's nobody else that was there to stand up against him. And then he just kills the pilot and the co-pilot for no reason. Like if he had just stayed in the back, his crew was already coming to get him. Yeah. Like what were those three guys going to do? We don't even know if those pilots were trained military people or not. Like his crew with like fully automatic weapons meets them on the airport runway. They could have talked them in using their radio. He could have, like, landed. You know, I guess they just... The only reason I can think of is that they wanted to show that he himself is a capable pilot. Mm-hmm. But even him, then, he's, like, flipping out, like, I can't see the runway. What am I going to do? I need you to guide me. And, like, you know, like, so it was, like, really a weird 
thing. They could have just like had the lights on, had those people land. They would have not known the difference. You know, like, isn't it at the end of the movie that he's flying the getaway plane? He is. And like, you know, like they even make a comment like, you're the only person who can fly us out of here. And I'm like, that's an oversight too. You know, like if you get this whole crew of like military guys, like you should have somebody else who can maybe fly the plane in case something went wrong. Cause he gets shot in the arm, you know, like that's not like the ideal thing to be piloting out with. And, um, and like, so, this is the guy know, they're trying to rescue. Like they wouldn't have anybody to be there to fly the plane or rescue him. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I thought it was really odd because like, you know, like they were expecting him on the radio like his guys were waiting for him to like make a call. I was like, that's bizarre. Like why have him kill those pilots? He could have just like stayed in the back, let them land and then just taken those people out. Even if he had choked out the soldier and taken his weapon, he could have just like stood behind their door when the plane lands, then like just like literally open the door and walk out, leave the pilots in there. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny too. So Um, funny part, funny part about that is when he does land the plane, I'm sure you're going to get this later. He has a funny line where he opens the, the, the cockpit door and he goes, freedom. And McLean punches him and goes, not yet. <laughs> yes, not yet. That was a great line. I did have that mentioned here. I thought that was very funny. He kind of goes into a tirade of little one-liners that I thought was um, very funny, like, you know, including like, I'm going to, you know, get my wife back, you know, by holding you hostage. And then like, he immediately like, like either shoots or not. Yeah, I guess like, he pulls a gun on him, so he shoots him, but then he like goes diving into the cockpit and essentially like blocks himself from holding the guy hostage. So it's like, man, that plan like, you know, came apart in a half a mm-hmm. second. There. Yeah. That unraveled real quick. So next thing then is because he does lock himself in that. And then like, they sort of like, you know, um, they're all standing around outside. First of all, I thought it was funny that they don't just like leave, <laughs> you know, like he's locked himself in the cockpit, like just get in your trucks and go. Um, but they decide to get some revenge on him. So they throw, like as many grenades as they have on hand into that cockpit, like through like the broken windows, (laughs) which by the way, it started off that there was one broken window at somehow at some point, the second window breaks. I don't remember if it's because they were shooting it or what, but somehow the second window becomes broken and they are just tossing grenades after grenades after grenades into that cockpit. And, and the note that I have here is that a grenade, again, if you know anything about a grenade, a grenade explodes from the moment you pull the pin out and throw it. It releases the little lever. From the moment that lever flips up, that grenade is going to explode in between two to six seconds. Right. They don't make grenades terribly longer fuses than that. And that scene, like where he's like watching the grenades pour in. Like two minutes after long. After, it's like a good like 30, 40 seconds long. I mean, like he's like getting in the seat, buckling himself in, you know, like, so first of all, I think one grenade would have done the job of blowing that entire cockpit up. I think that would have covered it. Maybe two, but they, they have a ton of grenades they throw in there. And those grenades have the longest fuses in movie history. And so I wanted to, they also have in point that out. They have incredible aim to get all those grenades in the window. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like that's a pretty big throw up into that plane. So they were, they were doing pretty good to like keep um, basketball hooping those things yeah. in, into the window there. So I, I think you had tried to touch on this um, when we had left um, last time, which was, you were curious about my take on some of the graphics in the movie. And now given there's not a ton of, necessarily special effects as far as computer visual effects in this but oh my god that ejector seat and parachute was so pinky oh it's so good it's so good it's 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 very (laughs) b-movie-esque yeah like i i was trying to think of that and like the only thing i can come to the conclusion of is that they stuck him in that seat 
they filmed it on a green screen with him even possibly sitting straight up and they just panned the camera in on him really fast. I think that's how they did that. I, I didn't bother going and looking this time to see if there was a behind the scenes, but I, if I'm just like looking at that and trying to figure out how did they do this shot, I think they just took a camera on a dolly and just moved it up to him to get it to look like he's coming up close and then like falling away again. They probably just pull it back again. But then that parachute, oh my God, like that parachute, that's, it goes back to that guy that got crushed by the um, mm-hmm. scaffolding. It's it's like, honestly, like it looks like they just threw like one of those little like army men on a parachute yes. <laughs> and like filmed it. Like, it's just like this weird little like, way that he's like holding the parachute it's like way off in the distance like he got like really far away from the plane really quickly to the point where they're like he's too far away let's go you know (laughs) and so oh my god i was laughing so hard at that like that was so great like Um, they they saw him eject they didn't pull out their machine guns and just start shooting at him in the sky yeah like if they were so set on killing him like they probably could have done that on his little slow drift down but they're like He's too far away, and I don't know how he got that far away unless the wind really started carrying him or something. But I, yeah, that was that was pretty funny. All right, so um, John McLean and the engineer single-handedly go off and try to find these people in that neighborhood oh. instead of letting any of those military people know. I I thought that was interesting, you know. And again, like John McLean, obviously, you know, in the first movie, by very sheer circumstance, he's kind of lone wolfing and, and, you know, trying to single-handedly take down these terrorists. But you have this entire military group who, obviously, later on, I realized they were going to betray um, him. But at this point in time, I'm, like, of the mindset, like, oh, all right, well, those are the good guys, you know, even though the, the main guy's kind of a jerk. You know, they've come in, they can save the day. Like, tell them, you know what I mean? Like, they're equipped to, to go fight these guys. But meanwhile, like, the two of them are like, oh, you know what? There's this little thing. Let me just tell John McClane about that. And then him and I will take a truck over there and check it out. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, Let's see. I have uh, the comment about the sentry going over. Oh, the sentry sentry. My phone uh, wrote it down. So the sentry going over his own footsteps. So he's like, he he says to him, he's like, this is the place. And he's like, how do you know that? He's like, because the sentry is walking over his own footsteps. Why would he be doing that? <laughs> First of all, why do you need a sentry there? I mean, like, maybe you need a sentry, but, but why? But then even let's assume that's the case. Why would he need to be going over his own footsteps? Like, do you feel like you're going to have somebody that's coming along and, like, checking for his footsteps in the snow to try and tell if there's terrorists there? Like, you know, uh, that one seemed really weird to me. He has these weird things where he's like, because of this. And I'm like, that's a great observation if it made any sense. But, but, but again, <laughs> McLean is a cop he wouldn't necessarily know all of these little things that are military related but again it's also a blizzard out those snow those steps footsteps are probably gonna get filled in right within minutes, <laughs> within minutes. that's a good point too i wasn't even thinking in that that respect that that also makes sense yeah i i did think that was very funny so there's definitely weird little things like that that you're like oh steven d'souza just wanted to be like he's stepping in his own footsteps because he's a sentry or something you know so I have a note here that just says worst pager timing ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so that's that goes back to our, our pager talk earlier. And it, it completely blows his cover as he's trying to sneak up on that 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 lone sentry who's trying to cover his footsteps, who then abandons his footsteps to bum rush him. 
But that um, fight so is it, awesome with the icicle at the end. Oh, it's- yes, I'm gonna. I was gonna mention that in a minute here. Yes, that's my third note in this little section. Icicle in the eye was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, in between those two notes, they've cut back to that military group of guys, and I thought it was really cute and funny that they had changed their outfits. <laughs> so they showed up in full like military green camo mm-hmm. and now they're all in like white, right? pure white so, like not even like white camo which maybe they didn't even have at that point in time but like white outfits I thought it was adorable that they took the time um, when they figured out that this was the case and they had to come like back them up to actually like change their outfits <laughs> so I thought that was fun um, uh, so Army Major Grant um, in, in this small period of time has had a complete change of heart towards John McClane. Complete. Um, like, like, over, so, like the blank. last time. Yeah. Like 10 minutes. Like last time we saw him when they were together at the airport, he's like, get out of here. You know, like you, you have nothing to do with this. Like we don't need your help. And then like he shows up and he sees them there at this place, which you think that he's immediately going to be like, you're a civilian, get out of here and let us do our job. But instead he's like, you know, I think, I think you're my kind of guy, you know, and like, I'm like, <laughs> You know, did he take a Xanax? What happened? You know, he he became very friendly to him all of a sudden. The only thing I can think of is that he's doing slight damage control. You know, like again, now knowing where the movie goes after this, that like they've figured out that he's at his place, and now he almost has to like try and be like, uh oh, they've caught us. I need to like try and like you know get him off the trail. But again, I'm re- I'm writing these notes in real time before I know that there's going to be a a traitorous turn. So. um my next note then is that a real military operation or a police operation would have completely surrounded that location. Instead, they sort of just do this like fanned out, like from the front approach. And so what this allows for is for all of the bad guys to escape on snowmobiles. <laughs> <laughs> and the second point I have to that is that the entire group of military guys pours into the church at this point, And John McLean is the only person that has any sense to chase after them out the back. Because he shouts to them, like, they're getting away on snowmobiles. And, like, the army guys, like, rather than, like, let's get in our truck and chase them, they're like, let's get in that church, you know? And, like, he runs out behind and starts trying to chase them. I thought that was also an interesting thing. Like, even if the guy wasn't like, you guys go into the church, you guys go over here. Now, again, I realize where this goes with the traitorous term, but at least at that moment in time, I thought that was a bizarre um, choice. (laughs) So um, I have here, it seems like when they left the church, they turned off the equipment that they've been controlling the airport. So why can't the airport reboot now? This is a question I have for you, because maybe you interpret this differently than I do. So like when they go to leave the church, the guy says something along the lines of like, it's up to fate now or something like that. And he like presses a button and all of that like electronic hardware that they've set up, that like timer that they have in the back and like all the like the radar screens and all that. All of it just turns off. It basically EMPs uh, itself almost. It's- yeah, I don't. I mean, it's, it's literally like he just shuts the power off. Yeah. You know, like they have those little like C4s that they've attached and those are still blinking away. But he turned that all off. Now, you know, like there's an alternate take on this where like they like leave it on, but they've booby trapped it. So therefore the guys can't stay in the church and try and shut it all down. But it seems to me like he's shut it down. Now, maybe it just turned off the screens. You know, I don't know. But it was a weird thing because like, you know, when you're talking movie making and things like this, like you're, you know, your movie going audience doesn't know what all that stuff is, except that it's beeping and booping and blinking and doing different things. So you're assuming it's doing something really powerful Um, for him to just turn it all off. Seemed like a very odd movie making choice, because then I was like, couldn't the airport just call all these airplanes and be like, terrorists, go somewhere else, land, 
bad things, you know, like, I don't know. That just seemed odd to me. So it is odd, but I think in earlier in the movie, they established that there is a, like a trunk line that runs from the airport underneath the church and with that. And they like cut into that, like tapped into that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they kind of cut their signal from the tower in order order to tap into the feed and that was where they yeah that could be sort of by turning it off it just killed the feed altogether yeah Yeah, that's true all right i'll I'll take that as the explanation i'll give you the uh i'll give you the uh, point for that one all right so at this point in time turns out that major grant is a traitor i felt very bad for that little new guy that was with them that he kills he like slits his throat while bizarrely handing out like bubble gum to like half the people (laughs) in the truck odd choice um uh but um uh they had ample time in the lead up to that scene to have wiped out John McLean the engineer and any other cops that had happened to show up like you know like when his military group shows up it's like i think Dennis Franz or somebody came with him but i don't think there's a ton of cops there yet like he could have just like capped John McLean and the engineer and been done with them did not make that choice yeah, you thought that was interesting there's literally <laughs> nobody else in that scene other than all of the bad guys the military guys yeah and the one rookie uh, soldier who didn't know that he's on the bad guy team mclean and the engineer and that's it so what that what that also then means is that they had an entire firefight with the people in the church and the people on the outside and it turns out they were using blanks oh. how did they know to do that well they they, <laughs> they established that later because they sh- this is a kind of a cool thing they do in the movie is they have the machine guns have duct taped two magazine clips. One has red tape and one has blue tape. And when you flip it over, one side is blanks and one side is is live ammunition. And they kind of like they say something during the, the no, firefight. He, he totally figures it out. And that's that's because like he's trying to shoot at the guy on the snowmobile and it's not doing anything. Um, and he's wondering like why it why that happened to be the case. So no, that I get that, but what I'm saying is like, why did they even know they would need blanks? You know what I mean? Like, why did they go through that whole system? It basically means they had to think out ahead of time that they were going to have some like false firefight that would need to look real so they could like you know essentially do this. But like, if John McLean and this engineer didn't figure it out, and those army guys didn't go to the church, there would have never existed that firefight. You know what I mean? So it's 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 some really really big planning ahead of time on those guys part to be like you know what we might really need at some point is a whole bunch of blanks <laughs> so it, it ended up kind of cool in the context of the movie but you know i just thought that was really funny then because they just have this huge firefight that turns out that maybe they didn't even need to have that um in the first place but interesting <laughs> <laughs> okay so um here's another thing and this is going to start tying into several things here now so I have a note here that I'm confused about the airport not having evacuated all the people. Um, I, I just find that preposterous. Um, so essentially their take was that when they realized there's going to be like a terrorist, you know, sort of situation that there's some problem where the airport is being at least partially taken over. And maybe the guys at the church had said something to them, like, don't panic the people that I'm just not remembering. Mm-hmm. Like they covered it up. They didn't want the public to know. They didn't want the people at the airport to know. But I feel like the people wouldn't have necessarily known that at the church. Like, it didn't seem like they had, like, active sentries, like, checking the place. I feel like they could have like, quietly, section by section, started just being like, ladies and gentlemen, we need you to, 
you know, calmly exit the building. We're doing a fire drill, whatever, you know, they could have started getting people out. So like the fact that they had kept all those people there with uh, assumingly more people drifting in all the time, that there's all these planes not landing. They're all delayed. They're not explaining why that like, nobody's questioning that, you know, like it just seemed like a really weird canceled. Like, it's, yeah, it seemed like a really weird thing that like people wouldn't have started questioning that, you know, outside of like that snooping reporter trying to figure out what was going on. Um, so again, and this is this is like uh, this is where I'm going to oddly take the side of Thornburg, who you're given to being like, all right, well, this guy's a jerk, so therefore he gets what he deserves. But if you look at it in this context, his wife tases him for absolutely no reason. Because he's already let everybody know about the problem. He's already been broadcasting it. It's already out there. She tases him, but she doesn't necessarily have the context that he's like on the phone broadcasting this to the news. So what that means is like she just cold-bloodedly decides that I'm going to tase this guy now. <laughs> like she has no other way of knowing that like that's what he's doing, that that it's gonna cause a mass panic, that it's gonna be a problem. Like she isn't keyed into that information. So she's just like, you know what? I don't like that guy. <laughs> and by the way, the authorities should have done this already. So I don't know. I'm on Thornburg's side here. I think he's actually fighting for the people in this one. Um, so uh, I'm curious how they did the stunt with the person jumping from the helicopter down onto the moving um, airplane wing. Um, I was going to look it up. I didn't end up looking it up. But for that period of time, that seemed like a pretty gutsy stunt to me. I think they had to have done that live some with somebody of, jumping. Some sort of practical an, stunt, yeah. I, I think so. I, that, there's nothing that's like CG or miniature or anything like that about it. Like, uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling bad about myself that I didn't go look this one up. Like, I did some of the Total Recall stuff, but I don't know. I, I was pretty impressed by that. That I mean, I, I, again, you know, I don't know who the stunt person is. You can probably go back and look it up. Hats off to you. That was a cool stunt jumping from a moving helicopter onto a moving airplane. And again, you can kind of see that it's like not moving all that fast. Like I, I kept thinking to myself, and I don't even remember if I made a note about it, that that plane taxiing is like the longest taxi ever. The longest and like you and taxi me have been ever. on some long taxis, I guarantee it. Ugh. But like it was just traveling in like presumably a straight line for like 20 minutes before taking off. And it was going like relatively on the slow side. Really? So I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. Um, so there's that. So, uh, the next couple of notes, and I'm actually completely almost done here. So thank you for bearing with us on this. <laughs> so go back to that helicopter thing. So he establishes in that helicopter again, that he's afraid of flying and afraid of heights. He says it in the line and then he jumps out of the helicopter. But then fast, Interesting. fast forward to two movies later, he's got his helicopter license. He's flying his own <laughs> helicopter. Uh, I guess that's just some uh, character uh, building over time. We'll see. <laughs> but it is funny they let that out of the bag. That'd be like if they did a new um, Indiana Jones and he wasn't afraid of snakes anymore. It's kind of just like built into the character. <laughs> um, so my next note here is that um, he's fighting with the major on the wing of the airplane. Oh, yeah. And uh, this was just so bizarre because like, all right, yeah, it's cool to have some guys fighting on the wing of an airplane. You know, that's on its own. Uh, one thing I, I know that the guy says to him, like, don't shoot the wing. It's full of gas. So, like the other guy just stands completely uselessly in the door rather than coming out and trying to like even help or something like that, or like trying to get an angle where he won't shoot the wing and shooting him. But um, him getting grinded up in that jet turbine is just bonkers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, 
It, it, anybody who's ever heard of a, a duck or a goose hitting an airplane turbine instantly knows that that basically downs the airplane. Yeah. Like the plane has to do an emergency landing. It, there's nothing where the guy like goes in, becomes a fine, bloody mist, and doesn't completely just destroy the jet turbine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that has already ruined the airplane. Like he doesn't even need to do the thing where he pulls the gas tank out and start letting the fuel leak. He's already won. That plane cannot fly with a human being having gone through that turbine. So that's one thing. If you can get your head past that and go, okay, sure, you know, the physics of that works in a cartoon world, fine. Um, <laughs> but he goes on, he pulls that gas plug out, and all this jet fuel starts leaking out of the wing. He falls off. He lights his Zippo thing. They're, they think they're on their way. They, they, they finally now have, like, continued along this runway, and now they're going slightly faster, and they're finally going to take off. <laughs> and uh, the flame travels down the runway. First off, it's a tiny little thing of gas next to him. As it travels down the runway, it becomes an enormous thing of gas. And <laughs> the thing of gas next like to him is like an inch wide. The flame moves at 150 miles an hour. Starts picking up speed, and this is my point. It not only fights the speed of a moving jet that's at speed for taking off, the jet is in the air at this point, so it travels up the fuel in the air and goes up and destroys the wing and the whole plane explodes. All right. Action movie. Well, that was cool. Back in the real world with physics and things like that, that does not work. No. <laughs> that jet turbine, again, like let's pretend that that guy didn't go through it and that jet turbine is working at some sort of peak level. It's blowing a ton of air back. Any fuel that's going past that is getting blown so fast and so dispersed there is no way that a flame is traveling up that and even if you were like pouring gas out i don't think the the essentially like the spotty nature of the fuel coming out because they had done something like this on mythbusters with if you peed on an electric rail would the electricity travel up the urine pretty close if i had to guess to how this is going to work with droplets of fuel flying from an airplane especially if they're getting spattered by a a turbine there is no way that fire is traveling up that. That fire is getting snuffed out by, <laughs> by the jet turbine blowing. So I'm pretty sure they make it and, and fly away and, and maybe have to refuel sooner because they've lost one wing of fuel. The other wing, because I used to work at an airport in fuel planes, is also going to be full of fuel. So they're going to be good to go for quite a distance. But like the other thing about that is they, the, the actual fuel falls onto the snow. Not, there's not a pool of fuel there. It's probably a little bit of fuel, and he drops that Zippo perfectly <laughs> to ignite it. Like, I mean, the one thing I will say, and again, this goes back to like my weird little summer working at an airport and fueling jets. Jet fuel is crazy flammable, oh, so no, I don't I, necessarily have a, a, a take on him throwing that lighter at it and managing to get it. Um, we'll we'll give that one up to the movie gods, but oh my god, some of the rest of that, like <laughs> that, just doesn't work. That plane gets away fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're at the end of the movie. Um, I have a couple dumb little notes here I thought just were funny things. So I, this news reporter who has been constantly around this whole movie trying to get her scoop on stuff, she is standing around with her news crew, and they're filming nothing. Yeah. His wife's plane has... Oh, excuse me. Actually, I'm sorry. I, I want to go back. I'll, I'll come back one. I, I have a note about his wife's plane landing. Um, but but they're they're filming his wife's plane and these people coming down on the ramps, but they're not filming it. Like if you look at them, like the news guy with the camera is just standing there with the camera kind of pointing at the ground. 
They're all sort of just standing, not filming it. And then as soon as she sees him and his wife together, she points it out to the cameraman who starts to film it. And then she immediately covers it up. Yeah. She is the worst reporter ever. <laughs> Why would she do that? Like, A, she doesn't have her crew filming this like crazy moment to start with. Then she points out something for him to film and then stops him from filming it. But I'm sorry, let me go back because I actually missed my note on, on actually the plane there. This was another really bizarre choice, I thought. So his wife plane has landed. The, the, the plane exploded. It creates this like huge thing of fire and they're using that to like find the runway. Um, but why didn't his wife's plane just taxi? Why did they pop the emergency doors and, and ramps? <laughs> like they landed. They were fine. They were on the runway. Like just taxi. Let the people out of the thing. Like, there's no reason. And then, like, it, it finally, like, you know, like, I had a note here about, like, why is it only the wife's plane? Where the heck are all those other ones that you saw, like, you know, flying around in the air? And apparently they're landing 15 feet away from them because yeah. it pulls out. I think that final shot of him and his wife where, like, they're, like, in the golf cart there's with like the... There's, uh, planes. <laughs> and there's, like, yeah, there's, like, 30 planes surrounding them in, like, this weird haphazard pattern. So I have no idea where these planes have been landing because they were seeming like there's like one shot where you see like a plane, like, I don't know, like maybe 100 feet over them that seemingly is landing. Um, I have no idea why these planes aren't taxiing back to the runway. They have no reason to be just stopping out there and popping their emergency hatches. So I, I don't know. That was that was very bizarre to me. Um so that's that's most of my points. I had another um, little oddity, which I think was just I was very unclear um, on the whole about the plot of the movie, why these military people in the U.S. were supporting this Esperanza character outside of like they just have some weird little throwaway line that like, oh, he's anti-communist and America should get behind this line of thinking or something. It seemed really weird because he wasn't an American general or something. He was like some like general from some foreign country Columbia. that I don't know if they ever mentioned Colombia, something like that. I have no understanding or idea why these guys became essentially mercenaries for him, like where they came from. Maybe they were hired, but it, it seems like more, they were just like into his rhetoric or something. I don't know. Like, do, do you have a take on that? Yeah. You know, that's a, it, so, you know, they're, they're like paramilitary guys. They say that the colonel is a disgraced colonel for some throwaway reason, but they don't really establish why they, how they a got connected with Esperanza, and b why they follow him as if he is their messiah. It makes no sense. They don't establish anything about that, and also there's nobody on their team that is from Colombia or wherever. Esperanza's from. Yeah, it just seems like an odd link. Like, you could almost make it up if it was like, oh, a bunch of those guys actually are people from his country and they're trying to break him out and bring him to where he can't be extradited and this and that, like they mentioned. Yeah, it, it seemed like a weird ragtag group that would, like, like this basically, apparently, group of soldiers that all worked together had something to do with Guantanamo Bay. Somebody mentioned that, yeah. I think. You know, that, like, they're just like, oh, let's support this guy. I mean, I mean, again... You know, maybe that had something to do with Guantanamo Bay because you're talking, you know, like that's like a a fight they had with, you know, communist Cuba at that time. It was failed miserably. I don't know how that ties back to Colombia necessarily. I don't think Colombia is necessarily a communist country. I could be wrong about that. I don't know. It was it was very bizarre because they. I think they also say that he's like anti-communist, I think. So I don't know. Weird, weird kind of plot. <laughs> but 
again, enjoyable movie. If you check your brain to the door, it's super enjoyable. John McClane is such a great character. It's a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit different. It fits that 90s, like, terrorists hijacking a plane thing that was so, you know, big back then. Um, so, uh, again, totally enjoyable. I'll have to see where it falls for me on the uh, diehard movie scale. But for now, I'll give it a, a good old thumbs up and suggest if you haven't seen it, go back and give it a rewatch. <laughs> so one of the biggest things that I learned about this movie over time was the idea behind the first Die Hard is he's, you know, a man by himself you know, the one-man wrecking crew, he's trying to save the day, yada, yada, yada. They needed to figure out for the sequel how to raise the stakes. So they, like, put it in an airport. There'll be 100,000 people there. He's got to save not just his wife, but he's got to save hundreds of people in airplanes. And we got to make it, you know, bigger and more challenging, this and that. The, the thing that really falls apart for me with this movie is... Hans Gruber in the first Die Hard is probably one of the best movie villains of all time, and he's on a list somewhere. Oh yeah, no, I, I've seen that in, in lists too, for sure. And this Colonel, McLean never actually really fights him. He fights the other guy, the the the, the major. Does he? But he doesn't really fight him. He doesn't have a real hand to hand combat with him, right? He doesn't. Huh? Yeah, and even though, like, I think they, I mean, like, you know, the, as you say, like, you know, they have the thing where, like, they try and shoot at him and throw the grenades in there, but he does not have that face-to-face knockdown drag out. They instead send Grant out on the wing to fight him, and I, the only thing I can kind of think of is that they're just trying to give that Grant character a little bit more to do, um, or that you want to see um, the colonel go out in, like, the fireball, you know, like, I don't really know why they kind of did it that way. And that's why I sort of said to you, I thought it was a bizarre choice that he sort of stood in the airplane doorway with a gun and watched the two of them fight rather than get out there. And he had like a, a you know, knockdown drag out with the two of them and somehow managed to come out on top. I think that could have even made for a more interesting fight scene. But as it stands, he kind of just like knocks, he, you know, he, he waits for the first guy to get thrown through the thing. Then he knocks him. Off. Actually, I guess that he knocks McLean off. So he must fight him a little bit. But, um, here's the thing. but then he like pulls the coat out and like comes back in the plane. So, but it was minimal. It was so minimal that obviously I forgot you about it. Established this guy as this super strong, athletic, naked Tai Chi guy in the beginning, and he clearly has some sort of martial arts background of some sort. He he looks like he would be a real good hand to hand combat fighter but you never really see him do a real hand-to-hand combat fight with anybody. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, especially for all that. I mean, I think, like I said, I think now that I'm thinking about it, as you're saying it, he has like this momentary fight with McLean on the wing after McLean has dispatched Grant. And he does get into like that kind of like martial arts stance and things like that. But maybe that's it. Maybe that's the takeaway. Is like, oh, he's so good at martial arts, he just kind of kicks McLean off the plane, and that's that. I, I don't remember that portion of the fight as well for some reason. Um, maybe it's because I was getting tired because it was like midnight when I was watching it. But uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> so overall, you enjoyed the movie, though? Yeah, overall, yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, I can see why it, it did as well as it did at this point in time. And, you know, even going back to what we were talking about with 
sort of the difference between this and um, Total Recall. You know, we were mentioning it does a little bit less money overall than Total Recall, but I got to give it credit because it's a sequel. And uh, it, it did pretty darn good for its time in the box office. And obviously it's had um, staying power in people's memories ever since. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, up until this point, McLean is still a very relatable character. People like him. He still feels like an everyman kind of a guy. Even in the third movie, he still feels like an everyman. It's after that where he becomes Superman. And you know, he's still relatable with his jokes and he's, you know, his satire and and the way he plays off of other people is great. And he does a lot of things that people are like, Oh, I would do that. Like I I'd climb through an you know, an elevator shaft or, or an air duct or whatever and I wanna do that. I wanna fight somebody in the snow and eject myself out of an airplane. You know, that's crazy stuff, but it's it still feels like a McLean thing to do. As the Die Hard movies go further on, he feels less like McLean and he feels more like, you know, Captain America or or somebody Unbreakable. Like, unbreak, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. Unbreakable. But, yeah, seriously. Um so as you know, as we kind of wind down here a little bit, I have a few thoughts about the movie and I, I've talked about it a bit here and there, but I do feel that it's it's a fun action movie. It's a, like you said, check your brain to the door, goofy, shoot em up, explosions, exciting thing. I do feel like they don't utilize certain characters enough, like the engineer, uh, Dennis Franz, and uh, what's the guy's name who's the head of the air- airport, uh, who became a senator in real life? <laughs> I'm blanking on it again. <laughs> but like, they have a, this really good cast of characters, and they don't do enough of them in the movie, which I feel was a disservice. And Fred Thompson. Fred Thompson. That's it. Yes, <laughs> there it is. I knew it would come back. Um, and I also feel like you you basically put Bonnie in the exact same Bonnie. Uh, her name is that's a real name, Bonnie Bedelia, but Holly Gennaro in the same exact situation where she just doesn't do much other than. Uh, tase Thornbird and um, I think that's part of the reason why she didn't come back for the third movie and then the fourth or the fifth because she feels like she's just doing the same thing over and over again and yeah I think I could see that and I again if you want to listen to the sequel quest episode where we do Die Hard Birthright which I called it it kind of it was a way to bring her back and she becomes sort of like the voice or moral compass or mentor to her children after McLean is basically blown to smithereens and dead himself. And it gives her more purpose because she, they don't really give her any purpose in, in the movies at all, other than being the damsel in distress. Yeah, I agree. And actually, um, as a matter of fact, just to make it easy for folks, I'll actually link in the show notes um, to the other podcast that Mike is mentioning. So you can actually take a listen to that as well. If you want to hear my voice for another two hours, sure. Go right ahead. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, dude, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad you got to rewatch die hard Two die harder and, and enjoy the film. And we were able to talk about this and it was exciting. I'm, I'm glad we had a good couple of laughs and, I was so happy when you noticed certain things that I was like, please let them notice this, like the dummy and the thing. Oh, such a good stuff. Um, Any final thoughts on your end? 
So final thoughts for us. Uh, we want to get you guys out of this podcast because we've talked long enough. Uh, the only thing I want to mention is that we do have our social media set up now. So uh, you can find us in three different locations at this moment in time uh, with a fourth I'll mention in a moment, um, which is uh, to look us up at Box Office 30 um, on Twitter and on Facebook. That's Box Office with a three zero. And on Instagram, that's Box Office T-H-I-R-T-Y. So uh, come give us an ad, check us out. Um, we post other stuff um, kind of throughout time, throughout the rest of the week, um, fun little stuff. And you'll also be able to catch up on when our newest um, episodes are going to drop from there. And then uh, the other new thing that we also have, again, this is also, again, special thanks to the Retro Network, is I have a website for us, um, www.boxoffice30.com, where you can find all of our episodes and some extra information. And we'll be adding to that over time as well. Very cool. And what do we have coming up as our next month's movie? So next month, we are diving in on the 1990 phenomenon that is Ghost, which is going to be the biggest box office hit of the entire 1990 year. And I do believe we're going to be joined by a special guest. Oh, boy. All right. So we'll have someone other than the two of us talking. Fantastic. I love it. That's great. I wonder if that'll put our, our podcast out to three hours. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I have a bad feeling that this one is already... Um, I, I called the first one when I released it a, a, uh, a large size or a big size version. I think this one might go longer, frankly. <laughs> we did talk a lot. We had a lot to say about this movie, which was, which was fun. We'll cut some bits out and throw it into the uh, bonus so, so, section. Yeah, so we're going to be also doing some bonus episodes here and there. We'll drop some funny little things that may have landed on the cutting room floor but it'll be a lot of fun to check out and and as always guys thank you so much for listening thank you to the retro network check us out on spotify and itunes and podbean and anywhere podcast everywhere everywhere the podcasts are found (laughs) whatever that might be you know thank you so much for listening do the sign off we we make them with a clever sign off like uh you know keep that popcorn popping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah why not <laughs> yeah do it you'll do it like until next time isn't it? <laughs> until next time keep that popcorn a popping see you around we'll see you in the theaters no we no. not not in 2020 <laughs> we won't not, not, not 2020 let's see <laughs> oh boy this has been a presentation of the retro network <laughs>